This episode of New Politics was released on the 8th of April, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wangal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, we look at the wash-up after the Aston by-election. Was it a Labor victory or a Liberal Party loss? And celebrating the life of Yunupingu, what does it mean for the voice to Parliament? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, announcing my nomination by Shady Silkar to clean up the Liberal Party. We've also got a book sale up until April the 30th, and that's a 30% discount on all of our books, including the recent Diary of an Election Victory, which gives a fantastic outline of the 2022 federal election. And David, you and I have got multiple copies of all of our books, but this deal is so good that I'm really tempted to order some more books just so I can get this very generous discount. I've already sent my order through for another couple more. This is too good to be true. It's almost like shoplifting without the moral and legal implications. And the details for ordering these books directly from New Politics can be found at our website at newpolitics.com.au and to get the 30% discount, just use the coupon APRIL2023 in the checkout and also a big thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. Without your support, we wouldn't be able to produce the New Politics podcast every week, so thanks for your support. Yeah, I'd just like to thank our Patreon supporters too. It's a pleasure being able to come in every week and talk about this stuff and I can't thank you all enough, so thank you. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription, but whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a t-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. The Aston by-election resulted in either a big win for the Labor Party or a big loss for the Liberal Party, depending on which way you look at it. But most of the analysis during the week has been on what went wrong for the Liberal Party, when the focus should be on what the Labor Party did right to win the seat. But Labor chose the right candidate, they had the right campaign. Conversely, the Liberal Party had the wrong candidate and they had the wrong campaign and they were punished with a 6% swing against and the loss of a seat that was previously very, very safe for them. By-elections have got so many political issues that can be read into them. It means this thing or it means that thing. And most of the analysis that is read into it tends to be wrong. But the Aston by-election result, more so in this case, I think, it seems like it's an accurate reflection on what's happening in federal politics at the moment. I think that's right. And there's been a lot of analysis over what's wrong with the Liberal Party. And most of it is without disparaging anyone who's done this because it did need to be said and we did it too wrong candidate you said it just then it was the wrong candidate to put in someone with that close a tie to news corp they may as well have put in the editor of the herald sun and again it, it's a shame for rashina campbell because she may well have been an excellent local member we don't know this for sure and i suspect not given that she was parachuted in but we don't know, and, and I guess we'll never know. She may well have been a really excellent candidate. She may not have started off badly and grown into it. The Liberal Party has basically thrown away the seat of Aston. I don't think they'll ever get it back. What Labor did right was, firstly, a strong local candidate. I don't think you can really overestimate how good a strong local candidate is. And I know that 
both parties like to get in celebrities. And, and by celebrities, I mean prominent people who uh, have a national profile or at least a state profile. But I think most of the time, you're better off going for the well-regarded mayor, the prominent business person who has a good reputation for honesty and integrity, the community worker who knows the district and its issues, and more or less reflects the values of the electorate. You don't want these far-right people going into what are essentially moderate seats. This is how you end up with less than 40 Liberal Party members across the country. This is how you end up with the party dead in Western Australia and Queensland. There's no coming back from those figures. The party dying in Victoria. The far-right rump who took over the Liberal Party is paying for it. Labor was able to capitalise on this and Labor did some very good things. They ran an honest campaign in Aston. They presented very well in Aston. The minor parties did a pretty decent job too, but with a strong major party candidate, the minor parties generally aren't in with a shot. If, if Labor had tried to parachute someone in or had decided this is a safe Liberal seat and run dead the minor parties may have got up then. But if Labor runs strongly, which they did, they tend to outmaneuver the Greens and uh, Fusion and then a couple of parties on the right. That's not to say that the minor parties shouldn't run, by the way. <laughs> they should run. They should continue to run because inevitably Labor will start to fall down. But Labor seems to be taking the change. And this is the broader thing I've been alluding to. There is a change in politics. We've reached the end of the neoliberal failed experiment. We've reached the end of far-right ideas taking hold. Now, I know that there'll be some Queensland people in the region, say, saying, oh, no, we, these are our beliefs. But these are fringe beliefs. They aren't taken seriously. The other thing, too, and we knew this in Victoria anyway, is that if there was any chance of media influence, mass media influence being a thing, it's gone. Gone are the days where it's Rupert Murdoch and Kerry Stokes and Fairfax, Peter Costello, choosing who the next Prime Minister is. Newspaper endorsements mean nothing because the Sun-Herald ran very hard in favour of Rashina Campbell for many reasons. <laughs> Not just the obvious ones that her husband is the editor, but they wanted a Liberal candidate in there. And the good folks of Aston decided that they'd had enough of that, that they weren't going to be told what to do. And Labor capitalises on this. Absolutely. But I think it was a by-election that was more than the sum of all of its parts, politically speaking. The Labor candidate, Mary Doyle, she easily won the seat from the Liberal candidate, Rashina Campbell. And Now, there can be a range of opinion polls, opinion pieces in the media, predictions about what's going to happen, speculation about all of these sorts of things, but nothing beats the hard, cold data that's presented in an actual election result. And that's pretty much confirming that the Labor government is doing very well under Prime Minister Anthony Albanese and the Liberal Party is doing very poorly under the leadership of Peter Dutton. And the Labor government is presenting as a very competent outfit. And after all of the noise levels that kept on going into overdrive during the time of the Liberal National Coalition in government, which always seemed to be consumed with dramas, climate change wars, culture war issues... All of these things that don't really matter that much to the electorate, such as religious discrimination, transgender issues, all of that going on about woke issues and abusing everyone within earshot just because they wanted to have the right to do those sort of things. But 
things have become more quiet since May 2022, where a government is getting back to what we'd expect a government to be doing, not just creating division within the community and not just seeking political opportunities at every opportunity. And that's not to say that the Labor government's been perfect federally, but I think this change in the way that a government behaves has been appreciated by the electorate. Of course, not everyone, but I think because of this behaviour and because of this change in the way that the government is operating, the electorate has rewarded the Labor government with a by-election victory in Aston. Yeah, as a historian, I must point this out. The first time in over 100 years that a government has won off uh, an opposition seat in a by-election. It's a remarkable achievement. It really is. And we're living in a period of remarkable achievements. The National Party's primary vote remains about where it's always been. You'd think that it would be tied up in the wash, but it's not. It's the opposition in Western Australia, for example. It's essentially the uh, opposition, well, in Queensland, they combined. But when you look at the election results... The National Party hasn't changed much. It went down a bit, but not the disastrous levels that the the Liberal Party did. The other thing, too, is that Labor, I think, has recognised that there are no safe Liberal seats. I would say that if I was a Labor Party strategist and I charge the same amount for advice to the Labor Party as I do to the Liberal Party, I will be assuming that there are no safe Labor seats either and look at why there are still safe Labor seats. And I would look at the quality of candidates. Not everyone in the Labor Party is the sterling figure that you'd want all of them to be, but there are some quite impressive people throughout the Labor Party in a way that there isn't in the Liberal Party or the National Party, for example. If I was Labor, I would be looking at somehow reforming factions in terms of you can't get rid of your factions because that's what makes the party the party, people with different ideas with some similar core common beliefs but different ideas as how to achieve them and how society should be structured. But I would probably make the uh, national conference a bit more active rather than just a collection of predetermined votes. Well, the Labor Party seems to have hit that spot where it's sitting quite comfortably politically. They're in office in every government across Australia except for Tasmania. Anthony Albanese seems to have slotted into the role of Prime Minister very well over the past 11 months, and Labor is in a very strong position pretty much everywhere. There is a little bit of trouble for them in Queensland, but we can see that they're preparing for a generational leadership change with Stephen Miles as the deputy leader being prepped up to become the leader eventually. I don't know when that will happen, but it's obvious that that's what they're planning to do. But everywhere else, they seem to be in a very, very strong position. And it's not like this just appeared out of nowhere. It's been a lot of hard work over many years. They followed many of the recommendations from their election losses over the past decade. They've chosen good local candidates, as you mentioned before, David, who have got that grassroots connection with the community and Mary Doyle was another example of that in the Aston by-election and all political parties do need to move with times and I think that's what the Labor Party has done over the past decade and perhaps over the next five to ten years Labor's biggest problem is going to be complacency and not managing expectations very well. Longevity is another issue where the electorate just gets sick of seeing the same faces over and over again or if it's power without purpose, which is what has played the Liberal National Coalition for a long time whenever they've been in office. They do get into office, forget about why they're there, and then they don't know what to do with themselves once they actually get there. 
And just like the Labor Party learned a lot of lessons from all of their previous election losses, I think the Liberal Party, whichever form it does take on, and centre-right politics, they will adapt and return at some point in the future, even if it takes them 20 years or so to go through and learn those lessons of continuous electoral losses. But at the moment, I just don't think they're fit for anything. Whenever they do return to office, they'll return as something different, because in their current form, they're obviously unelectable. And that's just not me taking pot shots at the Liberal Party, election loss after election loss, and now this by-election loss in Aston, the evidence does suggest that the Liberal Party is totally unelectable at the moment. There's not really a spot in the modern Liberal Party for the urban Liberal, the small business person, the person who prefers small government, the person who values the traditional family model, the types of people who John Howard could attract, even though he had no real interest in them. It's the type of people that Malcolm Fraser would argue he was representing. It's definitely the types of people who Holt, Gorton, McMahon and Menzies said they were after. Now, one of the things too is that demographics have changed. We don't have a middle class in the traditional sense anymore. and We don't have a working class in the traditional sense anymore. There's still elements of industrial working class around, of course. But the middle class is shrinking in terms of its income, its disposable income, its time, etc. Or at least it hasn't expanded. And that's a failure of a liberal government who nearly all of them managed to expand the middle class, either through fluke or through policy, till you get to Howard where it starts to shrink. And Howard was able to use resentment as one of the tools to keep his electoral success up. Part of it was resentment. Because he pushes it too far in the early days and you get the formation of One Nation and other far-right groups. But once he gets the balance right, he's still able to at least be seen to represent those people who are just on the cusp of what was the middle class and what was the working class and who are caught between these new definitions of economics. I don't think Dutton has the skill and I think what Anthony Albanese has done well is to give the impression, at the very least, that he represents everybody and that he's trying to be a unifying leader and Bob Hawke consensus leader. Let's get everybody in, let's talk to them. And he's got an opposition that's not interested in consensus because if they concede anything, they've suddenly lost their raison d'etre. So he's in a good position. You make your own luck, in a sense, in politics. But there has been a bit of luck involved, external luck involved anyway. You couldn't ask for a better opposition leader if you were Prime Minister, that's for sure. Now, I did notice one narrative that was appearing from Labor politicians in the wash-up of the Aston by-election, and that was that narrative that the adults are back in government, and that was also a narrative that was pushed by Christopher Pine when the coalition returned to office back in 2013, only for them to go on and behave like schoolyard bullies once they got into government. But this is something that Labor must be picking up in their focus group testing, that people are relieved that they've got an adult government in office now, and they're back to doing the things that people expect of a government. So Labor has done a lot right since returning to office and all of these opinion polls and more or less the by-election result in Aston, they do actually confirm all of this. And of course the Labor government can improve and in some areas it needs to improve a lot. New Start needs to improve substantially. We've talked about that quite a few times, David. They haven't done that yet. The single parent payment that morphs into New Start when the youngest child turns eight 
That was introduced by the Howard government and then modified by the Gillard government so that single parents on benefits lost up to $100 a week. That needs to be amended too, but so far the Albanese government hasn't been prepared to act on that. We also have those issues with AUKUS promising to spend $368 billion on those outrageous nuclear submarine deals when we could easily be spending that revenue on more worthwhile programs that could benefit more of the local community. Mm. So we did complain about the AUKUS deal, but it actually seemed to boost the profile and credentials of Anthony Albanese on national security issues. There's probably COVID management issues as well. That's a silent issue that the government is not really talking about, even though there's still almost 4,000 COVID cases a day. They could probably make antivirals more readily available or work out a way of offering more protection to vulnerable and immunocompromised people. Not sure what else they can do here, but it's an issue that we'll have to keep monitoring. So generally, there are still areas that the Labor government will need to improve on, but overall it's been doing pretty well and that's being supported quite favourably by the electorate as well. Yeah, the COVID thing... People have stopped reporting, so we, we really don't know what the numbers are. It could be that it's the 4,000, it could be more. We don't know. Um, and that's something that while the virus is still around, you'd think that the government would want to do a little bit more with. I think, too, that the Julian Assange and the Richard Boyle cases need a much swifter resolution. The Biden government is another government of adults. So you'd think that the glacially slow process of government could be sped up just a little bit. The Boyle case could be ended tomorrow with just a little bit of political will. And of course, there's the never-ending problem of the inhumane treatments of asylum seekers. That has to be continually monitored and fixed as well. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music, or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au. And you can now support New Politics through Patreon. Yunapingu died during the week and he campaigned for Indigenous land rights for most of his life. He first came to prominence with the Gove land rights case in 1971. That was unsuccessful, but it did give rise to the Woodward Royal Commission, which then resulted in the Aboriginal Land Rights Act, which in turn gave rise to the Mabo decision in 1992. Yunapingu was a highly respected member of the Australian community. He was the Australian of the Year in 1978 and said that he would always continue to fight for the right for Indigenous people to make decisions about their own land. He was also one of the members of the Referendum Council, which developed the Uluru Statement from the Heart and one of the co-designers of The Voice to Parliament. And there will be a referendum on this to be held at some point during this year. So the work on reconciliation, treaty, voice to Parliament, land rights, there's still some way to go on this. I think that we'll eventually get there. But Unipingu's work over a lifetime was an important part of getting to where we are right now. A giant of the nation, I think, from one of the great 
uh, Northern Territory family, the Unipingu family, are prominent in many fields. His loss will be felt, and we've lost a couple of prominent Indigenous voices over the last couple of years that we have felt the loss of. Our condolences to any family who may be listening, of course. It's a remarkable career because he's working on the Gove land rights case in his early 20s. And he's 30 when he becomes Australian of the Year. And he remains a prominent figure almost till the day he dies. One of the great names of Australia, who is also strangely unrecognised. We should be talking more about these figures. You're right, the struggle, I think, will end up with land rights being approved everywhere with a much stronger Indigenous voice, and that is in no small part to Unipingu. And the nation should be, and, and mostly is, very grateful for what he was able to achieve. So the tributes were flowing during the week. Here's Marsha Langton paying her respects to Unipingu. So this wonderful man came into the world when his people were in the middle of the most tumultuous part of their history. He became a leader both in his own culture and a bridge across between the cultures and between governmental systems, and he was able to steer people in the right direction and with great wisdom and grace. So his idea of constitutional recognition, he explained to Noel Pearson and me, some years ago, and he wanted a balance. He saw how the Constitution represented all of the people who'd come to Australia but had no representation for the people who'd long been here before they came, and particularly his own people, and he wanted constitutional recognition. He organised his people twice to present petitions to first Prime Minister Gillard and then Prime Minister Rudd on the matter of constitutional recognition. And he played a role from that time onwards until last week in steering people towards a good outcome. He was, I think, gracious when the Prime Minister spoke to him. I was not privy to the conversation, but the Prime Minister did speak to him on Zoom and his uh, family were surrounding him. And the Prime Minister gave him a message of hope. We're all heartbroken that he didn't live to see the outcome, of course. So I do hope that the referendum is successful because it will be in very large part as a result of his work and in honour of him. And it you know, gives all of us more inspiration to be as strong as he was in um, striving for a real sense of equality under the Constitution. And here's the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, paying his respects as well. I regard it as a great honour when his family reached out for me to have a conversation with him on the day that we announced the wording with the referendum working group that will go forward in legislation now and after a committee will, that's the words that will be considered before the parliament for a referendum at the end of this year. I had the opportunity and great honour of speaking to him that afternoon. He was surrounded by his loved ones and by his community. And he said to me uh, on that afternoon, and I'll never forget it, he said to me, uh, you spoke truth. And that was one of the most heartwarming things that anyone could possibly have ever said to me in my life. He was an extraordinary leader. We mourn 
with his people today and uh, we pay tribute to a lifetime of advocating for the rights of Aboriginal people in this country. He was a key focal point of the development of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. A wonderful, gracious request to advance reconciliation in this country. And when that happened in 2017, he spoke about lighting a fire. I think that today's a day that I certainly recommit myself to do everything we can to make sure that that referendum is carried at the end of this year. And reconciliation, treaty, voice to parliament, land rights, constitutional recognition, I think all of this is a pathway for a modern Australia, and these are all the things that Yunupingu worked towards and dedicated most of his life towards. And of course, there is contention within the community for what all of this means. And even within the Indigenous community, there's going to be some contention about how to arrive at all of these points. But these are important signposts for the direction of Australia as a nation. As we've talked about before, I don't know how long this is all going to take, but I'm pretty sure that we will get there at some point. But it is very important that Australia continues towards this pathway. And, of course, there's going to be a political dimension to all of this. Here's the Shadow Minister, Julian Lisa, paying his respects to Yunupingu. We gather on a day for Australians which is particularly sad for all Australians, but particularly Indigenous Australians. Yunupingu was one of the greatest Indigenous leaders that modern Australia has produced. The leader of the Gumatch, an Australian of the Year, a long-term chairman of the Northern Land Council, Yunupingu was a man of strength, conviction and determination. A true moral voice in our country who, I'm ha- who I had the privilege of meeting on two occasions. He spoke at this podium in 1977. He did what few could do. He fought and he built. He fought for rights for freedoms and for respect. And he worked in partnership to deliver land, education, jobs and opportunity. We remember Yunupingu today. We mourn Yunupingu today. May his memory be a blessing. And of course, these are the right words to say. And Peter Dutton also expressed similar sentiments during the week. And I do realise that it's possible in political life to express these words of tributes and condolences, yet have a completely different political opinion. But I actually found it offensive to hear Peter Dutton and Julian Lisa paying their respects to Yunupingu and then the following day announced that they were not going to support the voice to parliament. It's a little bit like saying, well, yes, we admire your courage and a lifetime of work trying to achieve treaty, land rights, even this minuscule constitutional recognition of Indigenous people and a voice to parliament just so that Indigenous people are listened to. Well, that's all great, but no, we're going to throw mud in your face. We're not going to support any of those things that you dedicated your life to, even a modest proposal of a voice to parliament. We are the small men of Australian politics and public life where we can't be bothered expending any intellectual capabilities or political capital on something so modest. And by the way, we're going to exploit all of this for political gain. Mm. And that's essentially what they were saying. And Julian Lisa supported the Uluru Statement and the concept of the voice to parliament when the coalition was in government. But now he's using weasel words to squirm his way out of what he previously said. So a lot of this is lame-brained opposition. Again, it's that opposition for the sake of opposition. And of course, they'll get the support that they're after within the community, that fringe-dwelling and racist element within the community. But it's entirely negative, nihilistic and political opportunism at its worst. 
wasn't a good look for them. I'm going to keep away from negative words because it's Easter and it's the time of peace and reconciliation. It wasn't a good look. In other weeks, I might have called it disgusting and disgraceful, but not this week, even though it was. It defeats me. And I guess they're going back to 2013 with the Tony Abbott playbook of oppose everything. And one of the great tragedies, I suppose, of Tony Abbott is that I do believe that a part of him does believe in having more positive outcomes for Indigenous Australia. He just had no idea how to how to do that without actually agreeing with the people who he hated to agree with. I don't think Peter Dutton has any concept of what is good and useful and helpful to Indigenous people, and I don't think he wants any concept of it. I think he's trying to nail his colours to the wall of an electorate that doesn't exist anymore and may have existed even two election cycles ago but was smaller than it had been. An electorate that sees that racism doesn't work, that we need to acknowledge the powerful impact and positive impact that Indigenous Australia has given. Now, I'm not saying, yay, we solved racism at all. There's still a long, long way to go, even in attitudes towards people. But it's moved away from Dutton's hard line to a slightly softer line. It's still a pretty hard line. Let's be fair. I I don't want to say, look at what all these good white people did and how much better it is. That's not what I'm saying. But Dutton's hard line, I don't think, is where the public is at anymore. Oh, and I think that's right. But fresh from their defeat in the Aston by-election, and David, it is Easter time, so I'm trying to be as positive as I can and as (laughs) constructive as I can, but I think the Liberal Party has missed a big opportunity for change. The voice of Parliament, it wasn't really an issue within the Aston by-election, but I think the voice of Parliament could have been used by Peter Dutton and the Liberal Party to announce to the world that they're changing their tune and of course this has probably got nothing to do with the voice itself but it could have sent the message out to the electorate that the Liberal Party is learning and listening it's going to start being more responsive more constructive and work towards solutions rather than being obstructive and saying no to everything but for me if anything Peter Dutton seems to have doubled down and it's like he's giving a big FU to the electorate for handing out a big defeat to the Liberal Party in the Aston by-election and now he's retaliating against the public. Here's what the Premier of Victoria, Daniel Andrews, had to say about it. This is our moment. We need to give Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people a voice and deliver in full on the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And it is absolutely breathtaking, it is appalling for the Liberal Party to say that this is an act of division. This is an opportunity and an obligation for national unity. That's what this is. Putting right the injustices of the past, or at least taking a big step towards doing that. Do you think that you get unity by by telling uh, First Nations leadership who gathered and laid down that Uluru statement from the heart, telling them that they were wrong, that's a unifying act, is it? This is appalling. It is absolutely appalling. And the Liberal and National Party, despite any state-based weasel words, stand condemned. To campaign against this is just wrong. It's just wrong. That's my view. People have to make their own judgments. But part of leadership is calling out racism, bigotry, and just a mean-spiritedness, a nastiness. They are a nasty outfit. 
If we can't find it in our hearts as a modern progressive Australia to acknowledge the terrible horrors of, of, of our past, then we will never have a shared future together. The final lines of the Uluru Statement simply ask for that all Australians walk with First Nations Australians. Is that too much to ask? And the former Liberal Party strategist, Tony Barry, he probably revealed a bit too much of his internal research when he announced that a lot of his focus group testing reveals that people refer to the Liberal Party as the nasty party and that Peter Dutton was a bit like an ugly baby that no one wants to talk about. And I think that's probably a little bit unfair to ugly babies. But essentially, the Liberal Party is behaving like a nasty reactionary rump that's based on the success of the federal Liberal National Party in Queensland. And the LNP does hold 23 of the 30 seats in Queensland. And that's where Peter Dutton is from as well. But Queensland is not the rest of Australia. Queensland is Queensland. And I think that these particular MPs from Queensland, they're not normal people. and I'm all for diversity in Parliament, but these people are bad characters. They just seem to hate everyone else except for their own type of people. And the type of politics that Dutton is exuding over the entire Liberal Party, I think it's ultimately going to destroy the Liberal Party. And, of course, there are going to be different viewpoints within the Liberal Party. Here's Bridget Archer, the Liberal Party member for Bass in Tasmania, what I reflected in the party room was we actually had the chance to do something and we didn't, and that reasonably we would be criticised for not taking action ourselves. And by not doing that, you've essentially vacated um, the field and you can't say that, um, well, we would, we would do it differently because you didn't. Uh, for me, there is a, you know, a moral imperative at this point to support uh, this campaign. We're going to have a referendum. The Australian people should ultimately have their say. And my view would be the best thing that the Liberal Party could have done at this point would just be to get out of the way mm. of that. And that's not what they've decided to do. The government took this to an election. Mm. Whether we might have done it differently, we didn't. The government took it to an election. I think that they have certainly got a mandate for a referendum. But she must be thinking, well, what's the point of being in the Liberal Party if I'm trying to be the voice of reason within the party and I'm not being listened to? And the Liberal Party is also threatening to disendorse Bridget Archer before the next election. So there's a strong chance that she'll quit the party and remain in Parliament as an independent. And just like Andrew Wilkie, go on to remain in Parliament as an independent member for a very, very long time. But I think we're at the point where we just have to start questioning the political sanity of the Liberal Party. And I'm not suggesting this just because I agree with what Bridget Archer is saying. It's just that the world has moved on and the Liberal Party seems to be highly influenced by a paranoid group of reactionary MPs from Queensland, and they're mainly men. And they seem to be very happy to be stuck in the past and be left behind in the political win. They were left behind on same-sex marriage several years ago. They were certainly being left behind as far as election results are concerned. And they're probably going to be left behind on the voice to parliament as well. So I think it's just a question of how far do they want to be left behind on these issues before they realise that they're going down the wrong path. It's notable, I think, that the Western Australian Liberal, one of the two of them, the Tasmanian Liberal Party, the South Australian Liberal Party, New South Wales hasn't because they don't have a spokesperson as yet and Queensland haven't. But the state Liberal Parties have, those that are in a position to, except for Queensland, have all come out in favour of The Voice and will be campaigning for it. 
let's be fair, some of that is political expediency. Some of it is noticing that the time is right, and some of it would be a genuine feeling that this is the right way to go. Just from a you know a personal, yes, I think it's time for this stuff. I think Peter Dutton is putting himself at odds with the rest of the party. And the other thing too, we have to look at the Teal candidates. All of them would have voted Liberal under a different party and found that the party had moved so far from their values that they had to run as independents. I think that there's a party out there that comprises the types of values that the Teal independents espouse, that is Malcolm Turnbull, it's Bridget Archer, it's Simon Birmingham, it's Kylie Tink, uh, Monique Ryan. That type of political view, Ken Wyatt would probably fit in into there. There's probably a few in the Labour side too that fit in there you could form a viable party out of. Now, I'm not saying that one, that these people should form a party or two, that these people are a party, which I've had conversations with people where they've said, oh, it's obvious that the Teals are an unofficial party. I don't think it is that obvious because <laughs> I don't think it's true. But I'm just trying to draw a picture of the type of voter that the Liberal Party should be aiming at. Really, it's your Menzian voter 70 years down the track, given all the changes in society. Now, Menzies wouldn't have approved of all of the changes in society and he, he wouldn't have understood half of them. It's a reflection of the broader political spectrum of mainstream Australia. So on the, we'll call it the right, you have those types of people who I just mentioned through to the centre, and they're quite centrist really in terms of the left and right dichotomy, which would have broken down in this country a long time ago if it wasn't for the extremist elements who dragged everything to the right. And then on the left, you have a lot of the rest of the Greens, maybe a lot of the rest of the Labour Party. And the middle where the split is somewhere far to the left of the Federal Liberal Party at the moment, which is why I think they're irrelevant. They're not talking to the people of Australia. They're talking to their little rump. So times have changed. The tighter history has moved along without the Federal Liberal Party, and that's why they're in crisis. If the by-election in Cook that is allegedly coming with the member for Cook having found a job overseas. Yeah, and there's also talk about Stuart Robert resigning from Parliament as well in Fadden. Uh, the seat of Fadden and the seat of Cook, Queensland and New South Wales respectively. It'd be interesting to see. Cook is an extremely safe Liberal seat. Well, it has been held by the Liberal Party for some time, and Scott Morrison holds it at the moment with a 12% margin. He did have a swing of 6% against him at the last federal election, but still that would be a difficult seat to lose, although there were swings towards the Labor Party of around 15% in those areas in the New South Wales election a few weeks ago, so anything is possible. And in Fadden, in, that's a seat in Queensland, well, that might be a possibility too, so you never know. Fadden is a changing demographic. So I suspect that the Liberal Party may lose those next two as well. I'm not as convinced that they'll lose Cook, but the Labor candidate there was very strong in the last election and he might just get over the line this time. Fadden, I think that's gone. And in terms of numbers, it puts Labor into a very comfortable position, puts them four or five ahead if Labor were to win those seats. So that makes the government's job a bit easier anyway. 
So have they learnt their lesson? Probably not. Is there a major reform which will be ugly and awful and terrific if you're on the sidelines watching this? Because that's what we do. (laughs) Probably. We're in a time of flux in Australian politics and we'll be here to watch it. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time. Thank you.